pretty much anyone who, who knows anything about the Bible, has ever heard of the Bible, has at least some interest, curiosity, questions about the last book of the Bible. Uh, it's called Revelation or the Revelation. Uh, in Greek, it's, it's the word we get apocalypse from, but it probably doesn't really mean apocalypse in the way that you think it does. It, it means unveiling or uh, disclosure, to make known. And specifically, it is the revealing or, or the disclosure that came from Jesus. Jesus gives a specific message to the, some churches at the time and churches still today. So it's what Jesus wanted churches to know, and that includes us. And let me go ahead and give you a disclaimer. I am not going to answer all the questions that you have about the book of Revelation in this series. So just lower the bar a little bit, lower the expectations. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're only going to cover chapters 2 and 3 in this seven-part series. Uh, but there will be some things, hopefully, that we learn for the first time or we get reminded of. The, these, these are the messages of Jesus through a guy by the name of John. And, and you know John. He was a disciple. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he writes this book that ends up being the last book uh, of our Bible. Now, interesting thing about John, although we, we can't say with 100% certainty, it's believed that John was the only disciple that didn't die a martyr. He wasn't executed uh, because of his faith. As a matter of fact, he lived a really long life and uh, continued his preaching, continued his writing, continued his teaching, continued to encourage churches. As a matter of fact, his preaching and ministry is what got him in trouble. Um, John is imprisoned in a way. He's actually exiled by a Roman emperor to an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea called the island of Patmos. They got tired of his preaching. They got tired of his teaching. And so they send him out to this island, which was common. We have a map uh, here that kind of shows you kind of blurry. But Patmos is the little red dot there in the lower middle section. It was common to, uh, instead of having prisons, to sending prisoners out to islands uh, for whatever their sentence was, however long uh, they were supposed to stay there. And John tells us specifically that it was because of his preaching that he ended up there. This is uh, Revelation 1 verse 9. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, that's why I was there. That's why I was on the island of Patmos. I was preaching the word. One of the Roman emperors, there's debate about which one, but one of the Roman emperors decided they'd had enough, and so they send John out to an island. One day, John says it was the Lord's day. Uh, he was worshiping the Lord, and, and there was an unusual presence of God's Spirit that day. He says he was in tune with God, like he felt God's Spirit at work in him. And John hears a voice behind him, and when he turns around, it turns out it's Jesus. Jesus has come in some form and is giving John a message. And he says this message, which becomes our book of Revelation, this message is supposed to be circulated to 
seven churches. Again, the map that's a little blurry, I apologize for that. But it shows you the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They sort of make a circle right there at, on that part of Asia. And Jesus says, I want you to write down what you see. I want you to write down what you hear. And then Everything you write is going to be circulated so that these seven churches can read this message. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus gives specific messages to each church. He takes a minute and he addresses each one of them about something specifically that's going on in their church and in their community. The first one he addresses is Ephesus. This is Revelation chapter 2, if you want to find it, last book of the Bible, chapter 2. The first one is, is uh, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is the greatest city of Asia at the time. A Pergamum is the capital, but Ephesus is the greatest city. Um, it's a harbor city, so there's lots of commerce that flows in and out of Ephesus, a lot of wealth coming in and out of Ephesus. Major roads converge there because of the harbor, and they take goods out. Uh, it was described as the market of Asia. This is a significant city at the time. It, it was not only economically uh, important, it was culturally Important. Maybe some of you have seen the amphitheater. I have a couple of pictures. Uh, this is in Ephesus. Ephesus, huge amphitheater. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go back and read Acts 19, and I encourage you to do so, it takes place in Ephesus. Some of Paul's friends are dragged into the amphitheater, and Paul wants to go in and speak up for them and. People keep him out because they're not sure what's going to happen to Paul if he actually gets in there. So all of this takes place in this huge amphitheater in Ephesus. Ephesus sponsored games that were similar to our Olympics at one time. That's how culturally central this city was. Um, here's ruins of a library. Uh, part of that's still standing. Uh, all the English teachers say, yay, library. Um, so this is another part of the cultural center of this particular city. As far as the church in Ephesus, the church was started by Paul. Again, you can see some of that in Acts chapter 19. Um, Paul later writes a letter to this church. Our book of Ephesians is Paul writing to this same church that Jesus is going to speak to in just a minute. Paul Paul's the founder. Paul follows up and is discipling and encouraging him. Timothy's the pastor of this church for a time. Uh, tradition holds that John, who writes the book of Revelation, that John later in life ends up in Ephesus and actually lives out the remainder of his life teaching and preaching and being a part of the community in Ephesus Tradition holds that's where he died. Uh, there's even one tradition that says he took Jesus' mother, Mary, with him to Ephesus. And many people believe that's where Mary is uh, buried. So there's this rich context of Paul starting a church and discipling a church and, and seeing it grow. But alongside that church, really kind of overshadowing that church is a mix of religious experiences all throughout the city. They weren't just a city of Christians. Christians were the minority. 
greatly the minority of, uh, of Ephesus and that whole region. Um, as one example, popular in Ephesus was the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. Huge temple was built. This is, this is what it may have looked like. It was destroyed and rebuilt several times, but this is what it may have looked like at one time. Some estimate that it was three times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, if you've seen a picture of that or if, you've, or if you've visited that place. Just a huge edifice drawing people's attention to the Greek goddess Artemis, twin of Apollo, daughter of Zeus, um, It was expected that you would worship this Greek goddess. And that worship included vile and immoral and evil, temple prostitution. Uh, All of this happened around this particular temple. Um, Again, tying history and the Bible together. If you go back and read Acts 19, a huge uh, conflict arises... Because people who are profiting off of the worship of Artemis get mad at Paul because he's preaching about another God. And there's this huge argument, this huge conflict that takes place in Acts chapter 9. That's how significant the worship of Artemis was in Ephesus. If you messed with it, you were the enemy. Now, this is what it might have looked like one day. This is what it looks like today which is kind of a message all on its own that you probably shouldn't worship Greek goddesses because it's not going to hang around for a real, real long time. But this was the, one of the focuses of religion in the city of Ephesus. Now, it was not just Greek goddess worship. The Roman emperors during this time uh, felt like they should not just be the leader, they should not just be the ruler, that you should worship them as well. Emperor worship was popular, or what was sometimes called emperor cults, were, were popular. That whoever was the Roman leader of the time demanded your full allegiance and that you should worship him. Here's the remains of the uh, temple of Domitian, who was one of the Roman uh, emperors. And uh, this one, a little bit better preserved, the, the temple of Hadrian. Again, they would, if they were the leader, they would build themselves a temple and demand everybody... Worship me. Obviously, we we don't know what it's like to have narcissistic politicians, but there was a time. There was a time when the leaders wanted everybody to worship them and have their full allegiance. Now, as you can tell, it's this thriving commercial, cultural, economic center, and yet it is full of immorality and wickedness. If you, whatever the city is that you think of in the world that's just wicked, whatever city comes to mind, whatever sin city is for you, um, multiply that by 10, and that's probably what Ephesus is like. There's one philosopher that wrote, you can't visit Ephesus without weeping for its immorality. It was just a way of life. Uh, There was no morality in Ephesus. Certainly there was no sexual morality in Ephesus 
Everything was permissible. Everything was expected. If you lived in this city, you were expected to participate in emperor worship and Greek goddess worship and temple prostitution and the sexual immorality that went along with the worship of Artemis. And, and in that community, there's, there's a little church. Right? There's a group of people that get together every Sunday and they worship together and they share communion together and they baptize and they study God's words. There's a group of believers surrounded by this wicked culture and Jesus speaks directly to them beginning in chapter 2. We read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know it's full of symbolism. That's part of the, uh, the one aspect that makes it so challenging is there's so much symbolism. And how do you sort all of the symbolism out? We're going to do the best that we can. Jesus begins by saying that uh, there, there are seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands or the seven angels uh, he refers uh, to, to in an earlier passage. There's debate about who, who the angels are that are in his right hand. Um, some people think that it is uh, literal angels. Like each church has an angel assigned to it, and that angel represents that church. Other people think it would be better translated messengers, the seven messengers to the seven churches Jesus holds in his right hand. Maybe the pastors, the leaders of the church, the person who represents the rest of the church, the person who is the representative for the whole of the church is who Jesus is. Is Maybe it's the person who's going to take this letter. That's the message. That's the person that represents the whole. I think what we can safely say is that the angel is the individual who represents the church. The, the one who represents the whole. And when Jesus says that they're in his right hand, the, the right hand is symbolic of protection and favor. Symbolic of protection and favor. In, in, in other words, um, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm holding, I'm protecting the person that is representing the whole, so the church. I'm protecting the church, and I'm putting them in a position of, of favor. We know the scripture says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand is a position of favor. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So when, when Jesus says, I'm holding them in my right hand, it's not just that he's protecting them. He's saying, I, I, am, I am showing favor. I am showing honor. I am showing privilege. This is, this is part of the way we understand how Jesus views the church. That he sees the church as some, something that he protects, something that is priority to him, something that... He favors, and, and then we have the issue of the lampstands, which Jesus very clearly says the lampstands are the churches. And so each of the seven lampstands represents the churches that Jesus is going to send this letter to. Now, 
In chapter 1, it says that Jesus is among the lampstands, or he's in the midst of the lampstands. What we just read in chapter 2 says that Jesus walks among the golden lampstands. He walks among the churches, meaning Jesus is always in the midst of his church. Jesus is always at work in his church. Chapter 2 says he's not just standing there. He's moving. He's dynamically at work Within the context of that church, he knows the church. He knows what's going on in the church. He knows what the concerns are in the church. He's always moving. So as we begin this series, as we begin to to plow through chapters 2 and 3, I think it's helpful to remember the way Jesus views his churches. The church overall, but also the individual churches Uh, as represented here in the seven churches, and that is he protects them, he shows them favor, he loves them, he's at work among his churches. We know that in other places, Jesus calls the church his bride. This is the way Jesus feels about us. This is the way Jesus feels about the overall church, but this is the way Jesus feels about individual Churches, he's protecting, he's loving, he's favoring, he's moving among them. And, and, and Jesus is going to say, as we move through these letters, he's going to say, you're doing some things great and you need to work on some things. There's kind of a good-bad message in most of these letters. You're doing some really good things, you're doing some, some things you need to change. This needs to change in you, but at the outside... At the outset, Jesus says, Look, I love the church. I'm protecting the church. I'm at work in my church. And, and so a reading of this, a reading of chapters 2 and 3, should not lead us away from the church, but to the church. Because Jesus is placing the church as a priority. So here's what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And this is kind of the pattern of the letters is Jesus says, look, I know everything that's going on. Let me get that out there first. I know everything, and here's some great things I know about you. Now, for the church, the people at Ephesus, the positives were, number one, they were hard workers. Jesus points out, like, you're, you're invested. He, he didn't mean they were hard workers in their careers. He, he, he didn't mean they, they studied uh, at school really hard. He didn't mean hard workers in a general sense. He meant specifically as it related to their spiritual growth and their spiritual life. Jesus said, this is what I know about you. You are committed to your spiritual life. Like you study. You serve. Like you, you are invested in the ministry of the kingdom. Like You're showing up and you're working hard and you're doing the right things. You are hard Workers, which is great for a church to hear. Like you are doing exactly what needs to be done. And the second thing he said about them is they didn't give up. You persevere. Like you keep going. You have had reasons to quit. You are in a city where there's extreme pressure pushing in all around you. 
Your community expects you to give up what you believe and adopt what they believe. And you don't do it. Like, you stay strong. You, you live in a city where everyone is expected to think the same things about every issue. Everyone is expected to adopt the same mentality about every concern. You are pressured to give in what you believe and you don't do it. You work hard at your spiritual life. You persevere when there's pressure. That's amazing. And then the third thing he says is you're committed to right teaching. You know the truth. You know what, the, what God's word says. You've studied the letters of Paul and Peter as they've come around. When Paul writes you something, you believe it. When you look back at the Old Testament, you believe that God is the one true God, even though your whole culture is telling you, no, you should worship this person. You should worship that person. You should worship everybody. You should not be so narrow-minded. Jesus said, I love the fact that you just stick to the truth and you're discerning. Like You're able to tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. You're able to tell the difference between what's godly and ungodly. You're able to tell the difference between what's good and what's evil, even though your whole culture has adopted an immoral lifestyle. You know what the truth is, and you're living it. He says down in verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we know almost nothing about the Nicolaitans other than the fact that they were taking the word of God and they were twisting it and they were offering a different message from what God has told his people. And Jesus says, you know what I love? You look at that and you know that it's wrong and you stand against it. You listen to that and you know this isn't accurate. This isn't what God says. We're not going to believe it. As a matter of fact, we're going to tell people this is false and this is wrong. What, what an incredible commendation. Especially living in a culture where everyone else worships something else. Everyone else does whatever they want with their bodies, in their relationships, sexually. Everybody's given up on the morality that God teaches in His Word, the truth that there is only one God and His Son is Jesus. Everyone else has abandoned it. And this little group of people, this little church is holding firm. But then Jesus says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far, how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Here's the problem. In all of their working, in all of their persevering, in all of their emphasis on truth, they had forgotten love. That was the problem. And apparently it was a big problem to Jesus. They believed the right things. They did the right things. They lived holy, righteous lives, morally righteous lives, sexually righteous lives. They knew truth from error. They stood their ground. They would not be pressured to give in to their culture. And yet Jesus says, here's the problem. Your hearts have grown cold. You don't love. 
In all of your serving, which is great. In all of your ministering, which is great. And your commitment to truth, which is great. Your commitment to right doctrine and right theology and right belief, which is great. But in all of that, there's this cold edge that's developed to your heart and to your life. And, and it's at this point that pretty much everybody you read about this, this passage, they ask the question, who did they fail to love? Was it God? Was it, had their love for God grown cold? Had their love for the other people in the church grown cold? Did they just show up and go through the motions and, and study God's Word and then go? Were they not loving each other in the church? Was their love for people outside the church what had grown cold? Their, their perspective toward people who didn't know Jesus? Had they lost a compassion and a love for those people? And most, commentary, most commentators will say, yes, it was all of that. The problem was that there was a lack of an attitude of love about their whole life. Their devotion to God had become ritual, had, had become just studying and accepting truth, and there was, there was no passion there. There was no compassion for other people. There was no heart for people who didn't know Jesus, who, who needed to hear the message of the gospel, for people who were blinded by the culture that they were living in, who had just adopted what everybody else said about life and God and, and morality. There, there was no there was no weeping. There was no brokenhearted for people who needed to know Jesus. They, they probably knew more about the Bible than we know. They probably were more obedient to the Bible than we are. And yet God says, you don't love people. And your heart for God, like that, that passion inside of you that... It, it used to be you, you couldn't wait to read his word. When you had the chance to worship, like your heart just responded because you were so in love with God. That's gone now. Where did that go? You see, the people in Ephesus, they got everything right about the spiritual life except the two things that Jesus said were most important. Remember what Jesus said was most important? He's asked one day, what's the greatest commandment? And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They got everything else right, except for the two things Jesus said were at the top of the list. Now, pause. We could easily make the other mistake as we're talking about the problems at Ephesus. Like we could easy as, easily flip this to the other extreme and say, look, it, it doesn't matter what you believe. You just got to love people. It doesn't matter how you behave. Morality is not that big a thing. We just got to love people. It doesn't matter if it's truth or not truth. Knowing the Bible's not that big a deal. We just need to love people. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, the, the fact that you persevere in a wicked culture is a great thing. Keep doing that. The fact that you discern 
What is of God and not of God is a great thing. Keep doing that. The fact that you know truth and you stand for it is great. Keep doing that. But you got to do it with an attitude of love. You have to do it in a way that engages compassion for other people. In a way that fires up your heart for who God is and the opportunity to worship God. It's not really even a balancing act. I'm not sure that's an appropriate analogy either. Because we're not trying to have a little bit of truth and a little bit of love and make sure we balance those two out. That's not really what I'm finding here. Jesus is saying that he wants his church to be fully committed to truth. And to clearly know what's right and wrong. And what's sin and what's obedience. And he wants them to stand fast in that. He wants them to persevere in that. Fully, completely, wholly at the same time. He wants their hearts to be full of love. He wants their hearts to be filled with love for their God who saved them and redeemed them through Jesus? For the other believers around them that they're walking through life with and they're serving with and they're praying for and they care about where they are spiritually and, and personally wants their hearts to be full of love for people who don't even know Jesus yet. Yes, they're deceived. Yes, they're making choices that we think is wrong. But my heart is broken because they don't know Jesus yet. Solomon would say it uh, thousands of years earlier. He would make the statement that it's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. He who fears the Lord avoids all extremes. And that verse applies to a lot of different things. But that's what we're talking. We're not talking about trying to get just enough of each. We're talking about holding on to what's true and, and what God says And what the Word says, and holding on to love. So what do you do? What what do you do if you're this church, you're this person who knows all about the Bible, all about what's right and wrong, but you know your heart's a little cold? Jesus' suggestion, Jesus' remedy number one is to repent. Repent. He said, consider how far you've fallen. But just, just stop and remember what your spiritual life used to be like. like. Before it became this mundane routine. Before it became, well, they're wrong and I'm right. Before it became this animosity towards people who don't believe exactly what you believe. This this edge towards people who don't obey the way you obey. Before that, do do you remember a time when you were just so in love with God that singing and worshiping wasn't a drudgery for you? Like you weren't thinking, how long is this going to last? How long are we going to stand this time? How long? When is this going to? Can we just? I got lunch plans. 
Was there, was there ever a time like when you just first came to know Jesus and it was new? And you were learning about him and you opened God's word. And you couldn't believe the things that you found. And, and, and you listened to a teacher or, 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 or a pastor. You, you went to youth camp and you just soaked it up like a sponge. You couldn't believe the grace that God had put on you in his son Jesus. Was there a time like that? And if there was, Jesus says, compare that, compare that time when you were so passionate for the things of Jesus to where you are now. And if there's a difference, you need to pay attention to that. You pay attention. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. And God says, this is what I want you to tell them. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. I remember a time there was this relationship between us. You would do anything that God asked. Was there a time when, when serving, you, you recognized, like, I, I'm getting to be a part of loving people by serving. I'm teaching third graders, and I'm getting to introduce them to the truth of God every Sunday, and I can't wait to do it because God's going to change some of their hearts, and He's going to use some of these kids, and I'm going to show up every Sunday because I get to communicate that I love them and God loves them. There was this, this desire, there was this, there was this passion that you were doing something Great for the kingdom of God. And you couldn't, you couldn't wait to do it. You knew. I, I, I'm just doing what God wants me to do. I, was there a time that you wept over somebody you loved that didn't know Jesus? And when's the last time we've done that? When's the last time we thought about somebody we care about? And we just prayed, God, get to their hearts. God, I love this person so much. Would you wake them? God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. I'm going to invite them to church. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep showing up in their lives because I love them so much. And I want them to know what your love is like. I mean, the spiritual life is like so many other things, like so many other relationships in our life. It, it, it gets to kind of an automatic pilot mode. And we just kind of cruise along. Because we know, we know stuff, right? We know the stories. We know what the Bible says. I mean, we come to church. We, we're glad to be here. We have friends. But we just, we just sort of coast Jesus, in his loving way, says, come on, snap out of this. Just doing the right things is not all I want for you. Just knowing the right things is not all I want for you. I want your heart on fire for God, for his glory, for the people that you minister and, and worship beside, for the people outside of this building who don't know Jesus. I want your heart to break because you love them. Remember, 
And then the next thing he says is, is repent. Well, you need to... You need to turn back. Consider, this is verse 5. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Go go back to when you were so passionate about Jesus. You loved God so much. Can you change? Can you turn around and light the fire again? For some of us, as we debrief this idea, this afternoon, tomorrow, later in the week, there's going to be a, there's going to be a voice, there's going to be a part of us that goes, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I believe the right thing. I believe Jesus. I believe the Bible. Now, I'm trying to live for God. I don't see a lot of other people in my circle trying to live for God. I mean, I'm trying to do the right thing. I've avoided a whole bunch of sin. Is it such a big deal that I love everybody too? Well, this is what Jesus said to the Ephesians. He said, if you do not repent, if you don't change, if this doesn't change, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Lampstand is the church, the individual local church. And Jesus said... I'm just going to be done with your church. If you're just a people who know stuff and try not to sin, but there's no heart, there's no love, there's no passion, there's no energy, there's no compassion for other people. If if that's not there, I, I, I can't use you. I don't want to be in the midst of you. If you're you're just making a list of who's right and who's wrong all the time, if that's all you see, I'm going to be done with you. Now, Jesus does not threaten every church with extinction, luckily. But this one that didn't love, Jesus said, this is how big a deal it is. I'm going to be done with you. And no, I don't want you to give up truth. And no, I don't want you to give up the word of God. And no, I don't want you to stop being discerning. And no, I don't want you to stop standing for what is right. I just want you to love. I want your heart engaged. He ends the letter. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a very similar ending to all of the letters. It's this open invitation. It's this grace to say, if you're listening, if you're hearing, come on. Come on, let's go. He who has ears to hear. There's there's this open door of invitation that Jesus is saying, I'm not done yet. I'm not walking away from you. I love you. I'm protecting you. I'm favoring you. You're at my right hand. But come on, we got some ways to go. We have to address this issue of the heart. 
We we have to stop viewing the spiritual life as, on the one hand, spiritual drudgery all the time. Oh, i got to do that again. We have to stop viewing the spiritual life as if I'm in the position to condemn everybody around me. I'm better than everybody around me because I know things and I do things that they don't know. And we have to remember that it was the grace and love of God that sent His Son into the world when we were lost, when we were separated, when we didn't know right from wrong. And He changed our lives. And if our lives have been changed, then our lives should be responding. For us, With each one of these, there's just going to have to be some reflection. For each of us individually, some reflection. God, was there, was there a time that my heart burned brighter for you than it does right now? Was there a time that I had more compassion for people than I do right now? And if there was, I want to repent and go back to that time. I, w- I want my heart on fire For you, not just knowing things and becoming edgy and judgmental. I I want, I want to be in love with you. And I want to be in love with people. Because you created them and they need to know you. Let's pray. God, it's it's eye-opening to hear Jesus speak to these churches because all the things he commends them for are things that, that we want. I mean, we want to be that type of church. Some, a church that knows truth and stands for truth and teaches truth. and A church of people who walk in holiness and righteousness. But sometimes, as we're becoming that church, we lose sight of the fact that our heart is getting cold. That our passion is not burning quite as brightly as it did at one time. That that our love for you, our desire to be in your presence, our love for the people around us, fellow believers, our love for those outside of the church who are lost. It's just not what it used to be. Maybe for some of us, if we're honest, it's not what it's ever been. And we need your spirit to come light a new fire in us. A fire of love and devotion and passion and compassion for a world that doesn't know you and is lost without you. Help us to love. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.